Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. So, uh, what, what's going on in your world this week, Joel? In the church world, we are approaching our annual meeting of the Congregation Incorporation, the Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are uh, it, PCUSA Presbyterians, and we'll have to talk about all the rhythms and synergies uh, from your story and, and ours. Uh, but we have an annual required meeting of the Congregation Corporation where we review what we did last year. We tell everybody what our plans are for this year. They vote on my terms of call annually, and, and we keep going. Uh, and, and it's always a— that, That's a fancy way of saying contract? Yeah, yeah, terms okay. of call. See, it's even— I love that. That word call is built into yep. our system. Uh, so we're headed towards that. That'll be Sunday, January 31st. And it's a big deal. I I take these uh, seriously because I came from a corporate world. I was a mechanical engineer who went through sales and marketing. And and when we were building annual reports on our company, the words we used and the numbers we put in there they had to be right. They had to be true. They had to they had to give the narrative as well as the facts. And I'm I've been working pretty hard with our leaders to to get our piece together. Uh, we had a cool little retreat on Saturday. Well, we, we did that. And I love sitting with church uh, church leaders who are, they're pros, right? The, we have, a, most of the time, if you have church leadership, you have people who are pros at something in, in the world, just not church. They are pros, oh, right? At, uh, they're a lawyer, they're a nurse, they're a speech pathologist, and, and they are good at what they do. And then they they step on the board of a church, and they, they sometimes want to make it look just like their company. And, uh, and I try to help them remember, hey, I did that too for a while. Don't do that. Uh, church is really different than the corporate world. And others will walk in and at the boardroom at their company, they are, or, or you know, on the factory floor or wherever, they're in charge. They make decisions. You, you just go, go, go. And they, something happens, they make the call, you keep going. We step into a church meeting and I see people hem and haw and delay and wonder and reflect. And, and, and I guess that's good, right? But there's a part of me that, that wonders why, um, I'm glad church isn't as corporate as the corporate America, and I wish it was more corporate, like corporate America sometimes. I wish we could discern wisely and make a good decision and then just go give it a shot. Uh, I wish we could take risks, and we're never going to know all the possible consequences. Let's just give it a shot. Go for it. Um so I found myself being part corporate, part clergy, and part cheerleader <laughs> this week. So you you express that better than I ever could have. I, I feel very similarly. Do you think that's a function of our leaders being volunteers? Because for me, I think that's the difference. Definitely, 
I, I've worked on this in, in my head, and I've read books about it, and I've asked mentors about it. I think it's very much associated with that. And I remember what it felt like to have people who reported to me, um, coworkers, and we all reported to the same person above us. And I remember what it felt like to have a, a boss or a boss's boss or all the way up to CEO level or whatever. And I remember that chain of command. And I didn't always agree with the chain of command, but it was there. And you might buck in a meeting and push back and suggest something strongly. But if they said no, you either had to go out and get more homework to prove your point, or you had to just go for it as they told you to. And to cash your next paycheck, <laughs> you you kept going. In a church, we're more dependent on them um, sometimes than they are on us. Like the, the, the institution of church and, is more dependent on the people who come to it than the people who come to it are dependent on the institution. And this is, a, I, this is certainly true for rabbis. You could tell me if this is true for pastors in your denomination, that there, there is a real generational difference also in that for the most part, the rabbis of the previous generation, it's like, I, I mean, I'm now very close with my childhood rabbi. He's the reason I became a rabbi. Um, and my parents are incredibly close with him. I mean, he is a dear, dear mentor and friend. But when I was in third grade, he was like, ah, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, I was nervous around him and, you know, perfectly behaved around him. And, um, and not only is that so not true <laughs> for kids that work with me, but I'm, I'm not that way. I mean, it, I think there is much more of a partnership in a synagogue, both in good and bad ways. I mean, there's, I, I think we're entering a place certainly in liberal congregations where, and I don't mean this, this is going to come across worse than I mean, but where we are seen as an employee of the place. We are the rabbi, absolutely, but we work for the congregation, which is, of course, true. 100%, I work for my congregation. Um, but there is kind of an, there's an attitude shift um, in perception where, you, where, you know, 30 years ago, there were places where the, it didn't matter who the board was, what the rabbi said goes. And by the way, I do not want that congregation. That That is not, but there are times, right, where it's like, you know, I really wish it would be a little, so yeah, it, 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 the grass is always greener, of course, but uh, that is an interesting reality. We're watching in our world the decline of institutional and professional authority. Not that institutions and, and professionals don't still deserve some deference from all of us, where they are the pro, where they are the educated, where that institution has been well run and supported our community and, and our national ideals for a long time. We need to uphold it uh, and support it and reform it so that it continues to get better. But what we're seeing is because um, so many of our institutions are not supporting the framework of our communities like they once did and, and like they were intended to. And so many of our so-called professionals uh, didn't go through the, the track 
the tests and trials to become the profession, right? Uh, you can become a professional celebrity with a good TikTok video now. Uh, it's <laughs> and I've been trying. Uh, right. I'm successful. I, I'm not a. I, I th- I'm not a TikToker. I, yeah, I'm not Neither there. Am I. Yeah, I've Snapchatted and tweet and Instagram and I hate Facebook the most of all. But uh, so you. But we're on it nonetheless. I, I'm I'm watching different generations. Like if you're 60 plus, institutions still have a lot of authority, and professionals are respected, especially if it's a professional that agrees <laughs> with the 60 plus year old. In the 40 sure. to 60 range, you know, kind of our range, we still appreciate institutions and professionals and expect the institution that we work for and the and our own profession to have some authority, not more than it deserves, but just some. If somebody's going to sit with me and talk about the Bible and they've never read it and they have a lot of opinions about it, okay, you have opinions, dadgummit. <laughs> I had to pass a master's degree and all kinds of ordination exams about that and get examined on the floor of Presbytery, and I've preached it for 15 years. Come on, right? right. Trust me on this. And I, I could, I had to take Hebrew and Greek. I could, I, trust me. And they don't. Um, and if you go in that 20 to 40 range, oh, like sometimes they don't even know why there are institutions. Like we've done such a bad job of showing that generation the good reason for having systems and structures in place, that they think of any system or structure as corrupt. And they just look at it as a dead weight, an anchor pulling us all down. Um, and and I'm, I regret that. I wish my generation and the one before me had done a better job teaching my generation and the one after me we, we're going to have to have a way to do this uh, with a system and a structure. Let's just be smart about it and careful. And and I think congregation members, maybe it's true for you there, they don't always see themselves as the volunteer employees of church and the customers of church are the rest of the world. They see themselves as the customers. And, and sometimes people come to church or synagogue temple well, I, I wrote a check, so you have to do it my way. No, 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 no. Uh, that is, yikes, I'm not sure who told you that, but that is not what we're doing here, <laughs> right? God told us to do some things. One was to bring some of our money. Two was to bring some of our time. Three was to go make a difference. And so that's what we're doing here together. We are bringing some of our money and our time and our resources, and we're serving our brothers and sisters, the greatest of all is not the one with the most power or money or toys. It's the one who serves. And and I I have a hard time um, selling <laughs> that. To do, it feels almost like a bait and switch sometimes uh, to folks. Oh, absolutely. I, another bait and switch. I, I was just talking about this the other day with a colleague. Not that it's anything new, but it's like, you know, if, if I were to, um, well, you do this because I, I we've talked about this or you, you maybe you used to do this in your old job. Like, you know, lawyers and things will divvy up their day in 15 minute increments and you could tell, you know, you could say exactly what you did in that 15 minute chunk. So if I were to divvy up, you know, the hours a week or even a day and, and say, OK, how much of this was teaching 
Judaism. And, and that could be global, you know, that could be as uh, general as it is. But an argument can be made that it's very little, right? You know, I'm in meetings about how to run religious school. I'm in budget meetings. Today I had a cemetery meeting where we talked about policies for the cemetery. Now, of course, it's all under the rubric of the congregation in Judaism. But in terms of teaching Judaism, you know, leading services, giving my sermon, a few adult ads a week. But the truth is, is... I think when we are doing our jobs well and being real with people, any interaction we have, whether we like it or not, and hopefully we do because we chose these careers, we we are symbols of that religion. And, you know, when you talk about youth, and I'm so glad you said this, uh, when you talk about how youth typically have an experience where they remember leaning in or away, I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to who are Jewish, not not necessarily in Athens, just all over, who are Jewish but don't belong to a congregation because something happened when they were a teenager and they either asked a question and the rabbi shut it down or there was a life cycle event where they really needed the rabbi, the board president, someone to kind of come in and care for the family and it became kind of a, a very... Um, uh, almost a commercial enterprise of how, well, it costs this much money and you haven't paid your dues. And, you know, all of those things are important. We have to pay our bills. I'm not so na naive to, to think otherwise. Um, but at the same time, like the last thing I want to do is to drive someone away from Judaism because of not caring. I might say something that upsets people, and we've talked about that in previous episodes, and I have. It doesn't make me happy that I have, but it's the reality. Um but, uh, yeah, it, it's so important for us to portray a caring source of, of religious connection to people. If the institutions of religion, I, I think they will survive. I think they will evolve and keep going and uh, they will reform again and continue being reformed. So uh, there's the Jewish and Presbyterian combo of those. Beautiful. Look at full circle, Joel. I like what you did there. Does that mean it's time to go? Uh, <laughs> but I do imagine that uh, we will have less overhead at some point in the future. Uh, there was this weird thing that happened post-World War II in America where all the religions began building buildings and people came back or they came home or their loved ones came home and there was the stronger middle class after the war economy and people could afford a dishwasher and a TV and maybe a car and there were good health care, uh, good pension, you know, in retirement and health care was inexpensive. And, and so institutions were growing fast. And people were grateful for them, including the institution of religion. Uh, after the war, it was perceived in somehow as a holy fight for— Well, and in Judaism, as we say, a, a Talmudic phrase, kol v'chomer, meaning all the more so. You could use it—it it could be used in all sorts of things. All the more so for Jews, where this was shortly after the Holocaust. Yes. And so the institution— of not only synagogues, but uh, Jewish community centers, Jewish federation, those became the safe places. Yes. And so when you talk about people in their 60s really respecting the institutions, that is especially true 
for, you know, I so many of my older congregants will say the first thing, and, and sometimes it's a, it's a criticism of the younger generation. The first thing we did when we moved to Athens was join a synagogue. It didn't matter who the rabbi was, didn't matter how much dues were, we joined. Um, and that reality is not the same in part the irony being because Jews have now succeeded in America and we don't, quote unquote, need those safe spaces anymore, which is a blessing, but it's taken away from from the, the structure. Even as you say, Jews have succeeded in this country. I think about some of the chants that I've heard in the last year uh, or two, right, where um, somebody with a tiki torch marching in. Charlottesville shouting Jews will not replace us or the the slogan at the Capitol invasion a couple three weeks ago the 6 MWE 6 million wasn't enough uh, Auschwitz either deniers or celebrators and and I realize that um, something about the the institution isn't just to support it it is to guarantee that I have a safe place to go when the dude with a tiki torch and logo on his jersey comes running at me. Yeah, um, and I can tell you, we we got a few congregants. Um, so you know, we talk, you talk about what attracts someone to Judaism. Some people call themselves cultural Jews. Um, some people call themselves Jewish. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a phenomenal, it's like 18 minutes. It's a documentary. It's going to sound very bizarre. It's a documentary on the history of the Barbie doll and how it corresponds to Jewish identity. It's phenomenal. It's called The Tribe. And it's all about, even if you're not Jewish, I think, if you're interested in these sorts of things, you'd appreciate it or one would appreciate it. It's basically about identity and, you know, being in, being out, all these things. And um, anyway, uh, a member joined shortly after Pittsburgh saying, Rabbi, I want to be a part of the congregation because it is important that we are here. Yes, it is. And whereas that makes me sad because I also want people to join to be able to celebrate Judaism and, you know, celebrate Simcha's happy events. Um, that is a, in its own way, a beautiful reason for being part of the community. After worship on Sunday mornings, I've started a class called Diving Deeper, and I invite those who are willing. I go out into the narthex, the church lobby, um, and we open the doors and get get everybody out of the building because uh, it's COVID, and we shake uh, elbows from, you know, or whatever and salute, and they all scatter. And then I go back into the sanctuary with a few masked folks, and we sit around, and I I say, okay, I had my chance to tell you what I think it says. What do you think it says? And I preached on um, this morning, Luke 5, and Jesus gets in the boat with Peter and James and John and tells them to push out in the water one morning after they fished all night and caught nothing. And he tells them to push out into the deep water, and they do for whatever reason, and they catch so many fish that the boat can't handle it. And we were talking about that, and one of the feedback – a person gave me some feedback, and he said, you know, if they would just believe in Jesus, they they would have caught fish before. And 
And I thanked him for that perspective. And then I said, you know, from what I can tell, they caught the fish before they believed. And it, it came from them just showing up, just going through the motion, just let's get in the boat together. Okay. Let's push out into the waters. Okay. Let's go out into the deeper waters. Okay. Let's put down the nets. Okay. They just went through the disciplines and practices. And then one day it made a difference. And I can't tell you when that day comes for anybody, but the day it makes a difference, it's not because you believed all along. It's because you practiced all along. So if somebody who does or doesn't necessarily believe or know what to believe or feel it in their heart shows up and starts supporting, perfect. That is that is the faith journey right there. Uh, I, I'm so uninterested. So I, I'm very interested in what people believe. But that stuff will never crush my relationship with somebody. It's how they practice it. It's how they put that belief into practice. The end. If I find it's the kind of thing where you tell me your beliefs are good and pure and you love, but then you vote for racism or bigotry and support it, and you even post it on your own Facebook wall, I, I, I find myself unable to reconcile the brokenness so of that is, human being. Yeah, it, this is, I think, the the biggest revelation, and I use that word purposefully, that I had about racism. So I don't know if you've read How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Have you read that one, John? Mm-hmm. We, so, um, the, I, you know, I've always thought, you know, at, at a very basic level, being racist means you don't like black people. And of course, nobody is going to admit to that, right? Nobody, nobody admits they're racist the way they admit, you know, oh, I'm not a very good driver. Um, but it's 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 one of the things that um, the author says is it. I don't care what you feel in your heart. What matters are policies. What matters are laws and behaviors. And it's not. I don't know that he uses this language, but this is something um, a friend and I. Uh, I've been talking about a lot lately is that it, the important question isn't whether or not you are racist. The important question is right now, am I contributing to the alleviation of racism or am I enabling its structures to remain intact? It's, a, it's not what's deep in my heart. I mean, very few people, thank God, are the Ku Klux Klan. They're still there. Like you mentioned, you know, people in Charlottesville and whatnot. And that is awful. But most people just, it, it, it's its what you said. It's not about what's in the heart. And in fact, the practice changes the heart, not the other way around. Jesus has this weird saying at one point, and people use it for stewardship when they're trying to raise money for church, and they'll say it wrong. <laughs> the way Jesus says it is, where you're treasure is there your heart will be also and what what do people say that's incorrect where your heart is that's where your treasure will be Uh, right so if you really love this church put your treasure into the church And, and they that makes sense to americans right americans think of it as well i love it 
So I, I love my child, so I give her a gift. I, and that's how we process. The, the feeling is first, and then the action flows from that. And Jesus is like, nope. <laughs> I, I can tell where you want your heart to be by where you are already investing the treasure of your checkbook and your time. It, and if you really want to love, then give that person the time to, so that y'all may love. If you really want to change this part of the world, then give your time, energy, sweat equity into that hard effort to change it. And then we'll see your heart move there. And, but what I find is more people are interested in following their heart. And, and what I try to tell them is, you know, it's not the way it works. The heart follows. Your heart's not out in front of you. In fact, it's kind of behind you sometimes. And you yeah. have to fight your heart desire to be a little selfish, a little greedy, a little self-centered. You got to fight that and go intentionally put yourself out in vulnerable, courageous places, start new relationships with people you don't know, and and see what happens. Are you sure you're not a rabbi, Joel? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's My so, teacher yeah, was. Well, it, it, that's right. Well, it does mean teacher. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't want to appropriate it, but it, that's such a Jewish idea of You remember, forward. he was kind of Jewish. Uh, so if I got it from him, <laughs> that totally makes sense. Jewish? <laughs> well, the Pharisees no, I, and scribes weren't sure he was Jewish. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, but th- this idea of kind of moving beyond your limited and perhaps incorrect version of yourself, of what the world is, I mean, that is the essence of our high holidays. Uh, of those two days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I mean, that, that that's it right there. That's the most heart, as a Christian, American, white, male, Southern pastor who is straight, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I hit the lottery, right? But I am, I'm so disappointed when I see the Christian voice in our country take its opportunity and misuse it and not sound at all like him. Uh, they get it backwards all the time. And I I guess somebody said, well, you can have your opinion and we'll have ours, right? That kind of response. Uh, yep. Yes, you can. And what I'm going to do is, if I have an opinion, I'm going to do my very best to show you from the Holy Words, Hebrew Bible and Greek Bible, why I'm saying it that way. And I will take the time to show you the context and the history, as well as the current events, and why I got to that connection. But I find some people, they'd rather worship... uh, the shortcut Jesus, um, and they oh yeah, then, then the hard one, the the long hard walk. Well, it's easier, right? I mean, that's. I mean, because then you don't have to do. It's easier to die I than mean, to live. Also, <laughs> right? It's it's yeah. way easier to die than to live, and, and all I encourage people to do is live until you don't, right? 
and life is hard mm. sometimes. But okay, live anyway. I'm reminded of this, the movie Grand Canyon. Do you know that movie? So it was made in the 90s by Lawrence Kasdan, who also did The Big Chill. And uh, it's a really thought-provoking movie about wealth, about racism. I mean, it, 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 and it, it's somewhat spiritual, too. I, I would encourage listeners. Um, I haven't watched it in a long time, so I don't know how it's aged. But there's this great scene where, um, oh, he's a famous African-American actor. His name is escaping me. Anyway, um, someone asked him a question like, how? Oh, no, he's telling a story about his father. Sidney Poitier? To be, no, 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 younger than that. Um <laughs> Glover. Uh, what's, Danny what's his Glover. First name? Danny Glover. Danny Glover. So Danny Glover is telling a story about his father who lived to his 70s in L.A. And he says that, you know, that's a long time for a black man to be alive in this town. And, and he, he looked like he wore those 70 years on his face. And one day I just asked him, how have you survived? How? And he goes through this kind of very intense monologue about it. And then, and then the friend who's sitting there is like, well, what did he answer? You know, trying to get the wisdom. And, and the answer was habit <laughs> you know that and it is it, it but living is a practiced habit i know that that, that is a complete aside but no, I that's perfect that to be i a, mean racism kind of, is a habit right bigotry is a habit uh and it's taught to us sometimes and other times we just slip into it accidentally or gradually and the next thing you know you're there um and our institutions are suffering because we aren't we aren't helping prevent those bad habits from getting soaked in to the fabric of our American culture. What one thing um, I was thinking of too is, you know, I am empathetic of congregants. You know, our services are Friday nights at six forty-five p.m. Right, so it's after a week. You know, in normal life, you're at work all week. And then Friday, you know, depending on where you work or how late you work, maybe you're rushing to get to services, putting the kids to through dinner or to bed, whatever. And so I understand very much the idea of, oh, I just want to relax at services. I want to hear the tunes I know. I want to sit next to the people I love. I want to hear a sermon that that makes me feel good. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I mean, I really empathize with that. And I think there's a time for that. But if that's all that we're doing, then we're no, then we're no better than, you know, like a, a self-help club or book. I mean, we have to be more than that. So totally we, we random to question. That. In Reform Judaism, could you move Sabbath services to another night? <laughs> so, oh, Joe, we could go on for hours. <laughs> that question's actually been asked, and I'll, I'll, I'll go from it. From a, or I'll take it from a different standpoint is I once got into a debate with a friend of mine who because Reformed Jews, we've changed prayers, right? So there there's prayers that are very uh, paternalistic that we've changed the Hebrew. There's prayers that say some pretty bad things about non-Jews that we've just completely taken out. I mean, things about reward and punishment. I mean, so we are we are not afraid to change our prayers, okay? Um, but so the the argument is, if you got a bunch of Jews together on a Friday night on Shabbat and you did yoga on the beach and people felt great about it 
And by the way, I'm not disparaging yoga in the slightest, <laughs> uh, uh, but that it is an example because it's kind of a spiritual practice and people like doing it and get benefit from it. That's why I bring it up. So the question is, would that count as Shabbat? <laughs> and I said, who, by the way, of course, as you know, not the most observant Jew, right? You know, I'm, I'm a reformed Jew. I lead services every Friday. Um, and going to services is important to me. Would I go every Shabbat if I wasn't a rabbi? Probably not, right? But um, so, so th my friend who is also a rabbi was saying that would be Shabbat for me. And I was like, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's people getting together. <laughs> it's wonderful. Go do it. I'm not saying don't do it, but don't call that Shabbat. Right. Like, let's have, like, let's be intellectually honest about it. And, and then, of course, playing devil's advocate, well, can I call what I do Shabbat at my synagogue where we use electricity and a guitar sometimes and men and women sit together, which isn't according to the law. And um, so, you know, th the aspects of how Reformed Judaism has changed traditional Judaism, you know, uh, the traditional Jews sometimes look at us as we're not doing Shabbat. We're not doing Judaism correctly. Right. And um, and so it, part of me is like, well, who am I to judge? But then again, you're the rabbi, that you are exactly. the one to judge, no, yes. That's right, that's right. I, I know that we're in trouble when a, a question at church has in parentheses, do we get credit for, right? It, it, you don't really, they don't say it that way, but when they ask you, the, well, does it count if, right? What they're saying is in parentheses, do we get credit for it with God if we, right? As soon as that is on the table, you're like, uh-oh, here we go. Right? This is the wrong direction. So, so it, that hurts. That's funny. We're doing Luke, and this week we're headed to Luke 6, and it's about Sabbath conflicts. Isn't that great? So here we are talking about it. And, uh, the story is Jesus is going through the grain fields, and his disciples pluck some of the heads and rub it together and eat the kernels. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, oh, he's plucking grain on the Sabbath. He's going to get in so much trouble. And, and he said, oh, my gosh, haven't y'all read the story where David and his troops went into the Holy of Holies and ate the bread that was only reserved for priests? And you're fussing at me? He goes, don't you get it? The bread and the Sabbath, we, we weren't made for them. They were made by God for us. And and he kind of pushes back on the ones who are you don't get credit for the Sabbath unless you do it the right way. He was pushing. Yeah. He was pushing back on oh, them. And, and boy, does Judaism have that in in uh, uh, so many ways. We we there's an expression in Judaism <laughs> counting your fringes of your talus. So the talus is the prayer shawl you wear, and it's like it's a phrase to signify that you're kind of bragging about what you do that someone else doesn't like I'm counting my fringes and yes. and sometimes I mean Jews can get so caught up in the fastidiousness of a particular mitzvah a particular law um, and again it, it also depends on perspective of where you're coming from it, if if you believe that God wrote the Torah and God wants you to do that then you want to do it absolutely quote unquote correctly. Um, but sometimes I think we miss the forest for the trees with some of these things. I'll share one quick story is um, I had a friend who, um, you know, 
there's a, the expression born again Christian. People don't know that there is such a thing as born again Jew. It's called the Baal Tshuva, literally a return um, to the tradition. And it, sociologically, what often happens is, that, you know, the person will sometimes have grown up in a more liberal, I don't mean uh, political liberal, I mean religiously liberal household. And then they'll discover Judaism through a college course or something, and they'll take a free trip to Israel, and they'll get, and I am using this purposefully, sucked into some group. And all of a sudden, you know, they can't eat at their parents' houses anymore because their parents don't keep kosher. And so I had a friend like this, and I was a rabbinical student when he went through this, and he would just, you know, if I was really cared about Judaism, I would be an Orthodox rabbi and live in Israel. Anyway, long story short, we had Passover at his family's house. And, you know, a, a traditional Passover. I don't know that you ever came to one of our Passovers, Joel, which is a shame. You'll have to come back to Athens, you and Jill, so we can invite you. Um, I mean, we do have, you know, four or five hour Passovers, but ours are, we're eating the whole time. It's fun. Um, but a traditional Seder can be like eight, nine hours, right? And um, lots of reading, lots of fast chanting, and there's a particular order and who goes next and all these things. And this friend's family wasn't doing that. And he was so frustrated that he was just flipping through his book, finding the prayers, but he wasn't really doing any of them because he he himself was rushing through it. And so we might have done a short Seder, but we, we did it, whereas he was just frustrated the whole time and experienced almost nothing for the sake of following the law. Perfect. It, it is, it's so painful to watch religious people forget the point of religion. And and it happens to me. I I've gotten sucked into that trap and caught, oh, you know, gotten sure. my ankle yeah. stuck in that bear trap. But when I see it happen, I've I've tried different strategies to help people get unstuck. Oh no. There's you can't really help them at that point. You just have to wait, right? They're they're stuck, they're flustered, they're frustrated. It should have been this way, it should have been this way, it should have been this way. And they have shooted themselves into a, a froth. And the only thing you can do is wait for the froth to, to bubble back yeah. down to a, a level and then reflect with them later and say, you know, part of that Passover meal is to remember and celebrate. And what I watched is you... You didn't really reflect and remember, and you definitely didn't celebrate. So as much as you met the letter of the Seder, Passover regulations, you totally whiffed on the spiritual food that it was meant to serve. And and even then, you can break somebody, right? You can hurt them so oh, bad. Yeah. Uh yeah. yeah, it's the pastoral authority that we have, and it's never meant to hurt, right? It's always meant to invite back towards healing, but sometimes, boy, no matter how softly you say it, it just still just comes across as a dagger yeah. <laughs> into their soul. And sometimes I'll, I, I'll have congregants who will ask me if they can do some. So, you know, in, in traditional Judaism, you don't officially mourn a grandparent. That doesn't mean you're not sad when a grandparent dies or anything, but you are not officially considered a mourner, which means you wouldn't say Kaddish um, for 11, the prayer for um, people who have passed away. And there are things you wouldn't do. And 
people come to me and say, you know, Rabbi, I was really close with my grandfather or my uncle or my best friend. And it's like, yeah, do it. Please do it. They, you know, they, but not only is there no harm in it, but you, if you are bringing integrity to their memory, you're providing healing to yourself, our, you're allowing our community to hopefully give healing to you. It's like at that point, yeah, that's what the Jewish law is. But then there's also what we're going to do in our lives. And those two do not always nice. need to be in the same. Which is a, a very a different that, request than somebody wanting to play like Frank Sinatra um, as the <laughs> anthem of their wedding or something. <laughs> Actually, that wouldn't bother me. You know, Ave Maria might bother me. Ave Maria would bother me. <laughs> Although well, right. I think I, it played at my own wedding now that I say that. I, I was in a, tw a little bit of a Twitter spat with a colleague of mine Um who took a little bit of umbrage at the use of Amazing Grace at the inauguration. Oh, my. And I've been thinking about it ever since because it's not a universal song, right? It's a Christian song. It didn't bother me, and after thinking about it How more, it is it a Christian song? So, because you know, it's used it in written, Christian churches. Well, and it was written for that purpose. And even though it doesn't mention Jesus and it doesn't mention... I mean, what it's purpose were the scriptures it. written for, right? We use them for those and for lots of other purposes. But I mean, there's a word for grace in Hebrew, right? It's that, for sure. it's that steadfast love, right? Uh, but it's not the way... Look, I, I loved it, Juice. When Garth Brooks said, sing with me, I was singing. I was crying. I, I was not offended. I, I still am not offended, although I have been thinking about it. Um but, you know, I, I understand the argument of use something for a civil occasion. Um, but, of course, you know, it, a part of me also, the, the reason I, I was against the argument, too, is it's like the, the, the timing of bringing that to bear with everything the country had witnessed and experienced. I, I just that was not top of my agenda. Well, and, and you have to – I remember when Obama just started that one up, right? And somebody – I think uh, she mentioned that, right, up on the – Yes, that's right. Right, at the podium. So uh, you have to realize that for those folks and in that spot, they are stepping up there as who they are. And and you and I had issues with this when we were trying to co-lead interfaith worship, right? But we were leading interfaith worship. We, we weren't doing a – a cultural communal program where Katie bar the door, y'all bring all your stuff. Um, I just love it that Georgia elected John Ossoff, and here we go, right? Like you, you just know there are some some good old boys who were present <laughs> at Charlottesville or at the D.C. Capitol earlier this month, uh. and now who are thinking, wait, did did we get that wrong? How did that happen? We, we just elected a black man and a Jew as our senators from Georgia. How did that happen? Um, and, and I, you know, transparency, I voted for them. I, I, I think if you were still a Georgia voter, I think it's fair to say you, you know. I live in Maryland, but I voted for them anyway. I'm part of the grand conspiracy. Oh, you're part of that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, don't I, say that on the I air. I also my got gosh. my dog to vote for them and a few, oh, right. a few dead people. What about your, that I what know. About your dead dogs yeah. from years past? Yeah, a few dead people. And but dead dogs. the truth is, is even if 
someone from another party won. And it was a black man and a, a Jewish man that I didn't vote for. I, I would really like to believe that I still would celebrate that. Yep. You bet. You bet. And not because I'm Jewish. In the same way that I'm not black, but in the sense of... It's a part of your celebration, the, but that's yeah, not the I mean, only showing reason. showing the spectrum. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh, Joe, we've been, we've been going on today. It's good. <laughs> It's always fun to chat with you about life, religion, and how to keep it real. Thanks for walking walking us into these deep waters tonight. Well, I, I'm looking forward to next time, Joel, hearing, uh, yeah, I, if you do call it a call, hearing your call story and what it might bring to bear on theology and Christianity and how we can all learn from that. So uh, until next time. Until next time. Peace out, brother. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.